get started. And I'm gonna just stop share for a second. And we have Katrina Geist, who is uh, an AgBioFuse student, and she will be introducing our speaker today. Hi everyone, I'm privileged to introduce Dr. Andrea Rissing. Um, she's a cultural anthropologist who focuses on US agriculture, food systems, and farmer livelihoods. Uh, her work intersects critical agrarian studies, political ecology, and environmental sciences. She also builds interdisciplinary collaborations uh, to find creative approaches to entrenched food systems. Some of Andrea's other research interests are alternative economies, human environment relations, policy and political economy, and qualitative methods. She's also an Arizona native um, from Tempe. Uh, happy to have you with us today. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much for that really kind introduction and for inviting me to share this project with you all today. Um, I really wish that I could be in Raleigh, but the stars didn't align for that to be possible this week. So I appreciate that Zooming is an option that we all have right now. Um, yeah, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be talking with you all today about a project that I was involved with last year and also earlier this year when I was a postdoc in environmental sciences at Emory University. Um, and this project for several months brought me regularly to northeastern North Carolina to talk with growers um, and other folks involved with agriculture there. So what I'm presenting today are some of the fieldwork findings um, from those trips and the argument of the article that I'm currently writing up with Dr. Emily Birchfield, whose lab um, I was in while I was working on this. I want to start by very quickly going over the background um, of the project, kind of what motivated the initial project and explain, you know, why we care about trajectories of crop diversification. Uh, I think one of the coolest parts of this project has always been the mixed methods approach that we use. So I'll spend a little bit of time um, really explaining that to kind of lay the groundwork. And then, of course, I'll talk about what I found during my field work and how these current issues fit into both the mid and much longer term histories of this region. Um, and so how understanding crop diversification in this area and I suspect in other areas as well is made much clearer when the long durée is also brought into the analysis. So we're including both 20th century agricultural policies as well as ancient geological differences between the counties. And what I'm building forward with all of this, because I'm also trying to present the argument that we're making as we write up the first manuscript, um, basically our argument boils down to understanding crop diversification. So what things support or hinder cropping systems becoming more diverse becomes a lot easier when researchers scale up slightly to the landscape scale rather than focusing exclusively on the farm scale. So as a complement to the many excellent studies that ask, you know, variations on the question, what are the drivers of farmers' decision-making, we're asking what contexts are conducive to diversification. And we're exploring what is gained when we think about crop diversification as a process of landscape change rather than the aggregate of individual farmers making decisions. What new insights, clarity, or useful theory can we start to access when we think about crop diversification in this way? And I'm really looking forward to the discussion um, with everyone. Obviously, you're all experts in North Carolina agriculture, and I can't really think of a more ideal audience for this project at this stage than you all. So I'm excited to hear your thoughts and feedback on our project generally and the fieldwork findings um, specifically. I, of course, want to start by acknowledging my colleagues, 
Uh, this project is a collaboration between environmental sciences at Emory University and the Department of Geography at Kansas State University. Uh, the project was funded by a research grant from the National Institute of Food and Agriculture. We had several nested objectives in the big grants. The one that I'm focused on today that I was most primarily involved with is identify barriers and bridges to crop diversification. So just flagging here, we're talking about diversification just through crops. We're not really talking about adding on chicken houses or getting solar panels on your farm or the other ways that farms diversify their income streams. We're talking just about different species of crops. So why? Why focus on crop diversity? What's at stake when we're talking about diverse crop mixes? Uh, just super briefly, across interdisciplinary research areas, a couple of big reasons consistently pop out. First is ecological resilience. So simplified agricultural landscapes, what really like monocultures, have well-established negative impacts on surrounding ecosystem health, including soil degradation, water quality, and wildlife habitat. And on the flip side, Field-level agricultural experiments suggest that farm-level crop diversity has strong positive impacts on both ecosystem health um, as well as yields. Today in the United States, agriculture accounts for over 50% of total land area and nearly 50% of fat agricultural land is cultivated in only three crops in corn, soybeans, or wheat. This, of course, isn't coincidence. These are the three major crops around which agribusinesses have focused their research and development agendas. And these crop species are also those that receive the most direct and indirect federal support. So at a national level, U.S. cropping systems have been simplifying for the last century. This all means that discovering what real life factors underpin crop diversification that's already underway is a really exciting question to tackle, or at least we thought it was an exciting question. This is the question that we set out to answer. Um, and to do this, the project proposed to use big data at a national scale to find the places that have been swimming against this tide of crop simplification, and then go in and use qualitative methods to compare them with the places that are going in the opposite direction. So step one was finding which counties across the entire country were trending most strongly towards more diverse or more simple crop mixes over time. So my colleagues used the USDA's Cropland Layers Database, or the CDL, um, which is made up of moderate resolution satellite images to tell which crops are growing in which counties in which years. Our time frame here was 2008 through 2020, and that's because 2008 was the first year that the entire coterminous United States was available on CDL, so it was really the longest time frame possible with this method. After they had accessed the crop mix for each county for each year, they then calculated each county's annual Shannon Diversity Index. This is a widely used index of diversity that basically measures the proportional abundance of each land use category um, in a given area. So then they, they had the SDIs and they plotted the annual indexes over time to calculate the diversification slope for each county, looking for counties that had been growing more different types of crops over time and those that had been winnowing their crop portfolio. Um, oh, and I want to quickly note here, the inclusion criteria for counties were those that were surprisingly productive agricultural counties. And we defined this as counties with yields more than two standard deviations above 
what one would expect given the biophysical realities of a region. So we were looking at the places that were outperforming what would be expected given their annual exposure to sun, soil quality measures, and water access. So we were only looking for those diversifiers and simplifiers among highly productive agriculturally intensive counties. So we ran the analysis um, and I've highlighted North Carolina here. So the green color indicates counties that were trending more towards diversified crop mixes and purple um, more towards simple crop mixes. Bertie and Washington are in red because across the entire region, not just North Carolina, but the entire region, um, their slopes were the two strongest going in opposite directions. This really caught our eye because across the entire country, the southeastern farm resource region was the only place where the strongest diversifier directly bordered the strongest simplifier. Um, so this is this and being driving distance from Atlanta, where uh, Dr. Birchfield and I were located, made it the clear uh, place we wanted to dive in and study. And you can really see the difference in how the agriculture of these counties look from space. Washington County, the simplifying county, has larger fields and its landscape is more dominated by corn and soybeans. Um, I also want to note here, since we were using satellite images, our ability to determine crop diversity was admittedly at a pretty gross scale. I know that there's a lot of nuance and distinction around selecting seed varieties and important conversations happening around things like planting non-BT corn alongside BT corn to create refuges and slow resistance. And you, you can't access that level of nuance when you're relying on satellite images. We were working at the scale of, is this area more corn or more wheat or more soybeans? Um, just as a, as a caveat. So this is where the project was when I joined the team last August. I'm trained as a cultural anthropologist and I was hired as a postdoc onto this project to lead the second phase in the Southeast, the deep data phase that brought in on the ground field work and qualitative methods to start figuring out what might be going on here. So working through extension, personal networks and snowball sampling, I took four trips between October of last year and January of this year. I stayed in Plymouth for the first trip and then I stayed in Edenton for the others. And the bulk of my data was uh, 28 semi-structured interviews that I conducted with 32 people. I also conducted six background interviews um, with state-level agricultural experts, mostly leaders in state-level agricultural organizations. Um, those weren't recorded, but they kind of helped me get oriented and caught up ahead of time. And, you know, as an anthropologist, I can't resist like driving tours of the farm landscape and eating lunch with people and a little bit of um kind of rapid ethnographic work as well to help contextualize uh, these, these interviews. But this is the bulk of the um, data. And this is how those recorded semi-structured interviews broke down. So in both counties, I talked with both farmers and agricultural experts. Um, by agricultural experts, you know, I mean research specialists, extension staff, and some people who were um, involved with or leading county-level food and agricultural organizations. Extension staff in both counties were tremendously generous, helping um, helping to get me connected to people across the counties. Um, so my sample was initially based on their recommendations and then snowballed out from there, which means that I asked people who I was interviewing, who else they thought that I should be talking to, and then contacted those people as well with invitations for interviews 
um, plus some connections through my pre-existing networks in the area. So I talked to the same number of people focused um, in Bertie County and Washington County, 12 folks in each, and then eight regional agricultural experts who um, you know, weren't working at the state level, but whose uh, work brought them into touch with growers in both Bertie and Washington. Um, and you can see the breakdown here of their demographics. Um, yeah, my job with these interviews was basically ground truthing. I was aiming to understand how farmers and community members made sense of these findings and explore what on the ground factors might either shed light on or complicate their trajectories. And of course, a big overarching question is how cropping decisions are made. What factors influence farmers' cropping decisions? So far, what's come out of the analysis are four primary explanations for why someone starts, stops, or continues growing a crop. I'm going to go over all four of them pretty quickly. These match fairly well um, with findings in the established diversification scholarship. First, no surprise to anybody, is markets. This came up all of the time in conversations with both farmers and the experts who work closely with them. This quote that I pulled out here is a representative answer from an extension agent explaining how they would advise farmers considering thinking about whether they wanted to experiment with a new crop. They said, your first thing is you have a market, you don't spend any money, you don't put anything in the ground until you have found a market. A couple of farmers that I talked with um, discussed experimenting with hemp in anticipation of new markets for the fiber and oil after its legal status changed. Other farmers talked about being approached with contracts for specific specialty crops like green beans or sugar beets when the prices were high. On the flip side, when the contracts for those specialty crops dried up, which one of the younger farmers who I interviewed remembered happening to his father decades ago, they stopped growing it. The second important issue to emerge was related to a farm's equipment. If you have already invested in a machine that can grow one type of crop, that is a very strong incentive to keep growing that crop, basically. This grower in Washington County was telling me about his combine, which he could use with different heads to grow corn or beans or wheat. And that is what he grew, right? Younger farmers especially were um, likely to indicate that the expense of specialized farm equipment, like a peanut harvester, um, was a reason that they felt more averse to diversifying into those new crops. The third theme to come up consistently was labor. This one I think is especially interesting because out of all four of the themes that I'm talking about right now, it's the one that's probably least prevalent in the diversification scholarship that I've seen so far. I think that's probably because most of that work um, has been done in the Midwest where, where pretty much everything is, uh, is more mechanized. Um, but here, first, many farmers indicated that they struggled across the board with finding labor. Um, that made them less likely, unsurprisingly, to want to grow labor-intensive crops like specialty crops or tobacco. A lot of people talked about more farmers in the region starting to use H-2A labor as well, which is an agricultural guest uh, worker visa program. Only two of the growers that I interviewed for this project were actually using H-2A labor, and they were really happy with it. They also told me that the structure of the program definitely affected the crop that they chose to grow. 
because you have to pay H-2A laborers once they're there, kind of regardless, these growers felt very driven to make the best use of this labor and to keep more labor-intensive crops like melons and sweet corn um, in their rotation. And finally, something that repeatedly came up when I asked people about who they go to for advice about their management was personal relationships acting as basically conduits to find out about and judge the quality of new growing opportunities. Um, extension staff, private crop consultants, folks at NC State were all frequently named as trusted sources. So were other growers in the area and people's farming neighbors. This farmer in Washington who had grown seed stock for a while told me that he first learned about the opportunity through his neighbor. And this is a story that I heard all the time. Many, many people reported that they would, you know, see what their neighbors were experimenting with. And if it seemed like it was going well, then they would go ahead and try it themselves. So after doing these interviews, after doing this field work, we had a pretty good understanding of the factors that were shaping crop decisions here. But this still didn't really help illuminate the differences between the counties, right? This is because the logic for each of these themes was pretty consistent across the sample. It's not like Bertie people were saying that they planted with wild abandon and they never worried about finding a market until after they had harvested the crop. Or that Washington folks were telling me, you know, oh, I never trust what my neighbor's growing. If he's growing it, I definitely don't want to grow it. That's not, that's not what happened. They were, the logic was the same between the two counties. So understanding the differences between these two counties' diversification trends, that it means that it requires accounting for the broader context and structures in which they are embedded and to which they are responding. This happens to be a theme that consistently appears as critically important and also often missing from research on farmers' diversification choices or their broader adoption um, of you know, conservation or other management practices. Several recent reviews of this literature indicate that broader structural contexts are critical for understanding on-farm management practices. So this review found that several variables can actually act as either drivers or constraints on diversification, depending on what's happening in the surrounding context. This review concluded that food system context similarly plays a key role in shaping farmers' choices. But this has often been left out of study design, as Lisa Prokopi and her co-authors found in this um, really recent update to their systematic review of research on conservation practices. So this is really the problem, right, of trying to balance agency and structure, individual agency and the structural context. This is the oldest forever puzzle in the social sciences, and it's something that theory usually helps us out with. The problem, though, as these reviews and others have pointed out, is that crop diversification research often lacks that kind of a strong theoretical angle. So one of the arguments that we're making is that scaling up from the farm scale to consider diversification on the landscape scale is helpful because it opens up new theoretical tools through interfacing with land system science. We, the way we're proposing to do this is by drawing upon this recent framework for explaining land use by Turner and his co-authors. So this is a recent framework that came out in 2020, I believe. Yeah. And this framework is synthesizing decades of socio-ecological work that is all seeking to explain why land is used in certain ways in certain places and why that use sometimes changes. 
they distill out of that body of scholarship eight explanatory variables connecting social systems and biophysical subsystems that they assert um, together can kind of account for a landscape is being used. This has been pretty siloed from agricultural science and agricultural social science, but we found it a pretty helpful way of approaching um, this study. So what they call the social dimensions are unsurprisingly the kinds of things that we can get at through interviews and field work. Um, the, the theme I talked about, markets, right, maps onto economic structure, relationships across actors, attributes, and the social institutions that facilitate those social exchanges. Um, the labor crunch that farmers talked about experiencing is clearly connected to demographic conditions in the area. And equipment and farm infrastructure starts to get into the technology space. But without the biophysical or the longer term factors, the diversification difference between the counties still wasn't that easily explained. When we start to fold in the bottom half of this framework, particularly previous land use, extant regional infrastructures and environmental conditions, um, what I think of is really the longer term part of this that are, that's shaping the context in which people are making their decisions and to which they're responding, then the picture starts to become clearer, hopefully. The first step towards bridging these areas is understanding the ancient and modern historical context of the region. So ancient environmental histories show that the line between the two counties falls nearly precisely on the Suffolk Scarp. This means that more of the land in Washington County was underwater longer, and much of it was swampland until it was drained in the mid-20th century. And today, it's still wetter, and it has richer soils with really much higher um, organic matter content. This is um, what I think is a really beautiful soil map of the state from 1983. It's made by the Soil Science Department at NCSU in cooperation with the Soil Conservation Service, which was the precursor to the NRCS. And this is the area we're talking about blown up um, with Bertie and Washington highlighted, just so you can really see how different the soils are here. So with this much organic matter in the ground, Washington County farmers have long prioritized planting corn because they can achieve yields that honestly rival the corn belt. In contrast, Bertie County has more mineral soils and sandier, better draining soils. This soil profile in turn positions Bertie to produce more tobacco during the 20th century. And if I heard one thing during field work, I heard people say that tobacco doesn't like wet feet. Um, so with its well-drained soils, Bertie grew enough tobacco during tobacco's heyday to be classified as a tobacco-dependent county, meaning that the government recognized that the money brought in through tobacco agriculture significantly affected the rural county's um, economy. Along with that, Bertie has and historically has had more small-scale farms by acreage. Um, Bertie also has a higher percentage of Black farmers. As of the last census of agriculture um, in 2017, 24% of Bertie farmers uh, are Black, compared to 8% in Washington County and 3% across the state of North Carolina. And if we're thinking about tobacco, one really, obviously, really important structural condition to think about um, is that along with peanut production, tobacco production was heavily subsidized by the federal government much longer than grain was. This was largely the work of North Carolina uh, Senator Jesse Holmes, who as chair of the Senate Agriculture Committee fought to preserve price supports for peanuts and tobacco and keep the crops that his constituents planted operating under different rules than those governing other regions. 
So tobacco and peanut production benefited from federal price supports much longer than other crops did. Uh, those price supports made small acreage farms feasible, and they weren't dismantled until the early 2000s, right before the satellite analysis that we were conducting um, picked up. So ancient geological histories then are kind of laying the groundwork for these two counties' quite different experiences in the aftermath of the quota buyout. This is an area that I really did see differences in responses between the two counties. In Washington County, farmers were telling me things like, the quota system ending didn't really affect farmers because they had never grown tobacco in the first place. Whereas in Bertie, for example, a farmer that I interviewed told me that his neighbor was growing vegetable crops today, which he never would have done under the quota system in his estimation. I want to highlight two specific ways that the tobacco legacy may be influencing Bertie's crop diversification trajectory. So following the tobacco buyout, many small-scale farms got out of tobacco. I found some evidence that the apertures created by farmers getting out of tobacco is being filled with more diverse crop mixes. So for example, this photo shows tobacco seeding equipment that had been sitting unused being repurposed for starting vegetable crops in response to a new initiative by the local food bank. The negative spaces created in tobacco's absence are being put to new uses by some farmers potentially affecting the county's cropping trajectory and explaining some of its diversification. The second pathway through which Bertie County's long history of tobacco production um, might be manifesting its transition towards more diverse cropping systems is the story of Clary Sage. So during my initial research for this project, before I had even come up to North Carolina, I was just going over census of agriculture fact sheets, and I was really puzzled by this herbs category from the most recent census. I was thinking, is this the, the unknown herb bowl of the East Coast? Is it, is it cilantro? Is it basil? It is, it is not those things. It is, as I'm sure everyone on this call knows, it's Clary Sage. So Clary Sage, <laughs> Clary Sage value lies in the compound scleriol that can be extracted from it. One of scleriol's many uses is as a cigarette additive. And in the 1960s, the tobacco company R.J. Reynolds established the sage processing plant and started Clary Sage production in Bertie County, where they already had a strong presence since it was a tobacco intensive area. That was a pretty short-lived initiative, but a few decades later, other uses for scleriol were becoming better known. In particular, consumer demand for phosphate-free detergents and other products led companies to want to reformulate, and that in turn skyrocketed industrial demand for scleriol. Avoca, a global bioprocessing company, bought that plant from R.J. Reynolds and contracted tens of thousands of acres of sage production. This repurposing of tobacco infrastructure drove a sage boom right during the time that our satellite analyses were picking up as well. Even more recently, though, synthetic scleriol has been developed and is much cheaper, which means that there's actually very little sage being grown today. I saw very little sage during the time that I was there at the end of 2021 and the beginning of this year, compared to even four or five years ago. And if we ran the analyses again, it would almost certainly look different, right, than it did during the time frame that we were zoomed in on. So to start wrapping up, in conclusion, 
understanding the diversification trajectories of these two counties, and we think crop diversification more broadly, becomes much easier when we approach this process, not as the aggregation of many individual farmers making decisions in isolation, but rather as a complex process that is impacted by broader political and ecological context. One framework for doing so that we found helpful was drawing on recent work in land system science, um, which lays out a method for integrating social and biophysical elements of a landscape and tracking their interactions. But I also don't think that that's the only way of doing so. Just as another brief example, I've been particularly inspired by the anthropologist uh, Kayla O'Connell's work at UNC Chapel Hill with North Carolina farmers, where she and Deanna Osmond argue for understanding farmers' decision-making as complex assemblages irreducible to individual cognition. They explain that understanding farmers' conservation decisions as assemblages that are influenced by local context, history, personal beliefs, and the temporality of social change creates a more realistic model for why different management practices persist and subside at different moments. I believe a similar argument can be made for diversification trajectories. This probably also means that thinking about diversified cropping systems as a static condition is not the most useful way to always conceptualize these ecological interactions. Like this is a diverse crop system, this is a simple crop system. In Berkey County, there was a time period of diversification that followed a period of relative stability and is now likely being followed by a time period of simplification with the development of synthetic sclerial. This means that the leverage points for achieving more diverse cropping systems lie not exclusively or even primarily within the boundaries of farms themselves, but rather in the shifting political, ecological, and social context, which combine in surprising ways to either support or disincentivize homogenous landscapes. All right, that's what I have. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrea. And I'm so sorry that we have that interruption that um, hasn't happened this year. Um, okay, so we'll take questions, and I definitely see some hands raised. Are there any questions in the room first? Okay. Um, let's see. I think I saw Red Bull had his hand raised, or is it Ashton? Ashton. Ashton. Okay, Ashton, if you'd like to, actually, I think it's just Eli. Eli, would you like to um, unmute yourself and ask your question? It's just Eli. Um, <laughs> um, so, first of all, um, I really was impressed by this work. Um, so, I, I was part of a, an interdisciplinary cohort within the GES Center. Um, Carrie and Zach are here too, and we took on a really similar question um, and really sort of completely failed to, to make sense of it the way you did. Um, so um, yeah, I really was happy to see what you presented. Um, my question, uh, you, sh you really showed great explanatory power um, in diversification. Do you think your work also has predictive power? Um, can it predict where and how um, crops will or won't diversify? Ooh, well, thank you. First of all, yeah, I know that it's it's a little intimidating, right, to present to a group of people who I know know this place much more deeply and personally than I do. So thank you for the um, kind words and the great question. Um, 
You know, I mean, I hope so. I, I think that would be the the angle we'd be hoping to move towards. We haven't um, done it yet, but my colleagues are modelers, right? So that's, I think, where where their brain always is, is trying to figure out how to tweak um, predictive models and fold in some of the more messy um, human stuff in terms of how to actually go about operationalizing policy insights and neighbor relationships and, you know, the value of expanse equipment in your shed already. Um, I think that's that's really the, my understanding is that's like kind of like the cutting edge of where um, climate modeling and agricultural modeling more generally is and needing to build in mixed methods approaches um, and, and work through those differences in languages and ways of approaching it to get there is, um, yeah, work I find really interesting. Uh, so I think, it's kind of unsatisfying, but I hope so. <laughs> okay, and then there was a question uh, early on in the chat from Jeffrey Roshishan. I'm sorry if I mispronounced your name, Jeffrey. Um, but he says, do you see any correlation with crop diversity and animal production feeding in those areas? Yeah, so um, Bertie County has, I think, one of the, it, I'm not going to say it's the largest, I'm not totally sure if it's the country's largest, but it has one of the largest Purdue um, poultry processing plants in the area, we in, in the country right there. It's a huge employer um, in Bertie. Um, one of the things that I was initially really interested in trying to figure out um, was, you know, where those chickens were coming from. And since we were focused on crops, where the feed for those crops was coming from. Um, I don't think it's pinned specifically to the agriculture of these two counties um, necessarily. Let's see, we, you know, we were really just, since, since we were from the very beginning, so tightly bound up with crop system, we weren't looking really, we like, it was it was an inclusion criteria as you have to grow crops. So if there were people who were diversifying into lots of different livestock species, but not growing any crops, I, I wouldn't even have been able to talk to them. But um, yeah, I mean, I, obviously agricultural landscapes are, um, are complex and mixed between different operations. What, what were you thinking of specifically? Or was there something specific you were thinking about? Um, I don't know if, so, uh, Jeffrey, would you like to unmute yourself and fill in? So I'm also very interested in what I, I know I missed a, a lot of things. No, that was a great presentation. I really enjoyed it. And I just was thinking, um, I'm wondering, you know, so it costs money to transport the feed as well. And then there's just some on-farm feeder producers and so and and it so just wondering because i know that you know in north carolina um poultry production hog production and i don't know which counties because i'm not a native north carolinian i live in Cary, which is where all the transported yankees live so um but i i'm just curious and i and i really particularly enjoyed the the section about just the land and the water in particular and how that dictates what crops people grow. And, and I think you hit the nail on the head when it comes to equipment as well, because the investment in farm equipment is, is so huge. So uh, 
I just really enjoyed your presentation, but just wondered about, you know, did you think about animal production too in the context of all of this? Because it it is somewhat interrelated. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Um, you know, just uh anecdotally, I guess I can say a lot, you know, when I talk to people about diversification, especially I noticed the young younger farmers who I talked with um were interested in, you know, diversifying not just into other crops, but into uh, you know, poultry or hogs, like you said as well. They can be um seen as good sources of income. So that's definitely part of the diversification puzzle for farmers. Many of the farms that I worked on did have um, animal houses um, out back. Um, they're definitely intermingled. And I think it's, yeah, it's when you're talk, thinking about diversification from an income stream strategy uh, for farms, uh, yeah, livestock is a huge part of it for sure. Thank you. Um, Dominic, would you like to unmute and ask your question? Hey, Andrew, a great presentation. Um, it's cool to see people doing research out here, actually talking to you from Washington County. My question is, um, what influence do you think that culture has on the agricultural landscape and, and vice versa? Or is it just kind of too difficult to, to disentangle those things? I, I mean, I don't know if we talked about it when when we spoke, but the cultures between these two counties are, are really different. Thanks. Yeah, good question. Let's see, you're like tagging me as an anthropologist. <laughs> um, you know, where I was thinking about culture most when I was coding the interviews, when I was trying to come up with the analysis was the, um, I put up those four reasons and the the really important role of social relationships. And I didn't, I, I couldn't fit it in, but everybody who was telling me about um, talking with other farmers, you know, would talk about, oh yeah, every morning we go to the shop and we eat a biscuit and we have coffee and we, um, you know, like check in with each other. And that kind of like social fabric as something really um, like well-established in the area and uh, conducive to how farmers and others, but you know, I'm talking about farmers, judge the the value of the opportunities that are presented to them by checking with like the people who they trust um, around around shops early in the morning. Um, seems like a really important pillar of rural culture to me. Um, uh, yeah, what else were you thinking of? I mean, I didn't have any ideas, but I just, okay. I, you know, like, uh, you know, folks, folks in here uh, in surrounding counties talk about how different the culture of Bertie County is. And I just was wondering if you ran across that and had any ideas. I, I, I didn't have any idea other than that. Yeah. I, I knew they were different. And I'm like, I'm trying to, I'm trying to also do, you know, ask people who know better than I do <laughs> the same thing. Um, in terms of, I don't know, I have to think about it more. If I could um, say that the culture itself is different, the, the way that I interacted with it was, you know, kind of aligned with the satellite maps. The, the Washington folks I talked to did run larger farms. So sometimes that comes with a little bit more of a, um, I don't know, you could say like conventionally professionalized attitude towards farming, for example, um, more more focused on uh, Excel spreadsheets and books and uh, potentially newer equipment, those kinds of uh, indicators of, um, you know, a certain approach to management. 
Okay, Yeah, so I have a follow-up. So, um, so Dominic said that uh, people around here say Bertie County is different culturally. Is that code for Bertie County has more African-American farmers? That's kind of my question. I don't I think like so. I don't think so. Yeah. I don't. I don't. I, I don't think so. But it could be. I want to. Maybe Andrea has an answer. Maybe she encountered something different. But that wasn't what I inferred by that. I mean, Bertie County does have more um, African American farmers. It has more small scale farms by acreage as well. Um, Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not sure if I can say if that's code people use um, or not. It, it didn't. It wasn't. It wasn't actually something that I heard. I was interested, Dominic, to hear you say that people say that the uh, culture about the cultural differences because I feel like I talked to more people who were surprised that surprised to hear me tell them that the counties were so different. Um, you know, people would say, "Oh, well, Washington has bigger farms, I guess," but they seem to be growing about the same set of, of um, crops and I'd, you know, pull out my printouts of the satellite images that I showed you and say, well, you know, look, can you, can you talk me through this? What do you think about this? Um, and that, that got us to some interesting places, but it wasn't a, like, oh yeah, those are the two most different counties in North Carolina type response I heard initially, typically. Yeah. And that's, it's an interesting thought, Nora, you know, like Halifax, Northampton, Canada would think it would even have more African-American farmers and like you don't hear that about those counties, but you do about Bertie, so uh, worth exploring. Okay, and I think Jason has his hand up. Hi, um, that was a fantastic presentation. Thanks so much for sharing your work with us. Um, I have a nerdy, wonky methodological methodological question for you, and Go then follow up on something uh, from from Eli's question. Um, the nerdy question is. Um, you know, just thinking about how you you jumped in your analysis from you know GIS data to interviews of farmers to the you know soil types from ancient soils and tobacco legislation. I'm wondering how you got from how you got to those other things like the biophysical data and the policy data. Did your qualitative interviews lead you to that? Or is there a way to identify those kinds of characteristics without doing that careful qualitative work? Because I think that's, you know, it was very clear in your presentation how the satellite data led you to the qualitative work. But mm -hmm. those other explanatory factors, I mean, they almost seem magical that you found them. Um, so I wonder <laughs> if you could talk about how you how you got to them. And then my other question is, a, is builds off of Eli's comment about the predictive value of your research. Um, and instead, I want to ask the policy question, which is, given what you found, um, are there policy levers that could incre increase crop diversification? Because part of your story seems to say we're, we're, you know, at, at the, we're inheriting a certain landscape culturally and biophysically. And so is there any hope to diversify crops in Washington County versus Bertie? Thank you. Thanks. Those are really fun um, questions. Let me, I'm going to answer the, the second one first, because I'm afraid once I start rambling about methodological approaches, it's going to, I'll forget the second one once I start talking about the first one. Um, yes, I 100% think that there are policy levers. I see the, 
I see the point of kind of the story I told is that policy is really important, but it's one factor among many. So it's going to work in different ways and be more or less powerful along different dimensions in different places. So it's not a, you know, one size, it's not, it's not a one size fits all approach. It's not a hammer that's going to act the same way across, you know, even bordering counties. Um, other, you know, when, when people ask me about policy, I, I always, Go back to another project that I was on on farmers' access to healthcare and farmers' access to childcare, and try to you know plug um, policies related to support for healthcare and childcare as potentially really important but underrecognized um, social policy levers that could have big impacts on farm families, um, as well as you know many other uh, different professions in terms of being able to keep keep people on the land and bring in, you know, people who don't have strong family networks in rural areas um, in in farming as well. Um, from this, yeah, I mean, I you know, the, the tobacco subsidy um, issue ending was, was a huge part of it. So I definitely, I see policy as a, um, you know, potential really important thing, but it's also not going to be, I don't think that when people we're talking about ending tobacco quotas, crop diversification after, um, you know, tobacco support ended. I don't, correct me if I'm wrong, if anybody knows, I don't think that was one of the positive benefits being posited, you know, so it, it happens in kind of um, surprising, surprising ways, um, which I think is, is really interesting. Um, for your methods question, how I got there, I'd say it was a combination of the magic of doing interviews with uh, smart people and my training as an anthropologist. So I've been, yeah, I've been trained as an economic and environmental anthropologist. And one of the things that feels very natural to me when I start a new project is to learn about the history. So it was really kind of an iterative process of me doing a little bit of um preliminary work on the ecological and, uh, you know, uh, political histories of this region before I showed up is just kind of my own due diligence background work, and then really paying attention to the explanations that my interlocutors gave. So a lot of, you know, I had a lot of fun interviewing um, some older farmers in the area who told me lots of tall tales about the swamp being drained in Washington, um, about their parents' experiences. Um, that type of thing. And, you know, after, after you hear a couple of those clues a couple of times, um, I just, I couldn't resist kind of pulling on them and, and following them, uh, through the rest of the project, um, as well. So it was, yeah, it was a mix of, of those things, I think, that, that led me to this kind of analysis. Okay. Um, I think Zach Brown has his hand up first. Hey, uh, great talk. And like Eli said, we were wrestling with this. And so it was nice to just see this like blast of insight <laughs> that you provided us. So that was really uh, illuminating. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, one, one question, I guess the question I had for you was, uh, how you think about like the normative aspects of crop diversification? Because we struggled with this and that with that PhD group is, you know, is it, I mean, obviously there's like, Crop diversification is advanced as a like uh, um, something that promotes resilience uh, in the agricultural landscape, or there's other benefits potentially. But but also, I mean, I'm an I'm I'm an economist myself, and the 
the case studies that you looked at, I mean, you have this like incredibly high yielding county uh, in Washington with very productive, less diverse farm, large farms. And, um, and I think I have to pull this up, but I'm pretty sure conventional wisdom is more economically profitable on average than in Bertie. And so I just wonder if the diversification there based on the history you provided us, I mean, it seems my takeaway looking at what you showed us is like those farmers are still looking for a way to be profitable. And so they're trying out lots of different things. They're trying out different things, but I mean, there's one story potentially that could explain this is that they're trying out different things and they haven't quite figured it out yet. Whereas in Washington, they have figured it out because, and that's what everybody's doing because everybody's doing the thing that's the most profitable. And so I guess from a normative perspective, you know, why per se do we care about the diversification what, what, versus just like farmer well-being and sustainability mm-hmm. of, of farms? So Yeah, yeah. So the, the diversification motivation would be from more of an ecological perspective, I think. You know, the I'm the social scientist on the team among a lot of environmental scientists who, um, you know, talk a lot about ecological resiliency that comes through species diversity, um, building in edge effects into, into fields. Um, having wildlife habitat. And there is, there's some good evidence that more diverse systems, even by, even by like just a little bit more diverse yields more as well. Um, so there's, there's those types of things we can point to for, you know, benefits of diverse agricultural systems. But that's also, this is getting back to the landscape idea, right? Those benefits are also seen as landscape scales. So it doesn't have to be that like one farm is growing 17 different crops in their rotation. It's like benefits can be accrued if a whole, if a region, um, you know, which may or may not include specific on-farm diversity, but if the region is growing um, more different types of things. Um, yeah. And I think you you hit the nail on the head when you said the farmers are using similar logic. You know, they're like they're they're all trying to make a living. They're all trying to kind of reach the same types of goals. Um, the way I see it is that Bertie County, you know, Washington County, you have that soil, you're going to do well in corn. Corn's a reliable market. It's something they know how to grow. It makes a lot of sense that they're growing corn and soybeans. Bertie seems like the sandier, and I'm not an agronomist, but my understanding from talking with folks is that their soil types open them up to doing well with a much broader range of different crops. And it seems, you know, I talked to folks who said that they're, um, you know, they were approached by uh, by uh, brokers with contracts for cucumbers for Mount Olive. It seems like it's just kind of known as an area where, um, you know, vegetables can do really can do really well. And I didn't talk to any of those contractors. Unfortunately, that would have been a fun addition to it. But I assume that the same types of things, especially like networks and personal relationships, are also informing. Um, you know, where those contracts are coming from. And once they've kind of established uh, a, a knowledge of an area, um, they're going to keep coming back there. And it's, it's something that's been happening for decades, as far as I can, as far as I can tell. So there's the soil type there that makes it easier to experiment with different types of things, uh, feeling like a reasonable economic choice. You're not going to be planting something that's doomed based on your soil type. Mm-hmm. I get it tack on just one thing about the soil types, Andrea. We talked a lot about soil types when you're here. And I think it's on the one hand, you're saying the soil type in Bertie um, encourages experiments. But I think it's it's actually almost the other way that the soil types in Washington County discourage experiments because they do so well for row crops that 
it's hard to give up what you know you can make on row crops because it is such productive soil. So it kind of discourages experimentation on other mm-hmm. crops. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Thanks, <laughs> same same, same answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. I was trying to frame it positively, you know? <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, you'd be insane to not, I mean, you'd be insane to not grow corn if you have like, that type of organic matter. <laughs> hey, I think uh, Fred has his hand up. Yeah, I think very interesting talk. Thank you very much. I, I was just thinking of two things. Um, one is uh, following up on, on Zach's thing in terms of the farmers sustaining, but also in terms of the ecology. Were you looking also at non you know farms that don't have non-crops on them, basically abandoned uh, areas? Because in terms of biodiversity, if you think about the Piedmont area here and in the New England, we're giving back a lot of land. And that's sort of unsustainable farming land, right? That's yeah. a complicated. Do, what, do you have any sense? Yeah, so that, that, that's such a good point. Um, so that would have been picked up by the satellites, right? Um, the things that I know we missed that, I'm, that I, I wish we had x-ray satellites would be any production that was happening covered, like in a high puddle or in a hoop house. Um, I think that that wouldn't have been included in the analysis. But things like like... CDLs definitely have codes for pasture land, for grassland, for prairies. That would have been picked up. But if it went too far that way towards, you know, um, prairie for, for pollinator habitat, it might have risked pulling the county out of our inclusion criteria because, you know, partially because of, you know, we're working uh, under USDA funding. One of the things that we built in was we were looking at those surprisingly productive counties. So folks that were really yielding above and beyond what their sun, soil, and water um, inputs would have predicted would be like a normal yield to expect. So I'd, I'd have to I'd have to go back to the initial mm-hmm. analysis yeah. to know to what well, was, they were included or not. I was curious about that. And the second thing is that you, you gave us this beautiful case study that's very interesting to us especially, right? But there are obviously were other counties that had some of the same contrast. So I'm just curious, obviously it could be a completely different story in different counties. Are you following up in the other counties where there were contrasts like this? Unfortunately, and so we're not following up, unfortunately, with the other North Carolina counties. What's happening Uh, is other, um, this is, you know, also with Kansas state. Um, So there's two other farm resource regions uh, where they're doing qualitative work with the diversifying and simplifying uh-huh, counties right. in those other areas. And then we'll be able to do, yeah, like compare the diversifiers across the country, compare the simplifiers across the country and kind of see what comes out of um, looking at things along that dimension. That work is um, is still ongoing, but, but yeah, stay tuned. That'll be really interesting to see the contrasts or similarities in, in what yeah. drives those things different places. I, I, I Could be completely agree. different, right? Yeah, I know, I know. No, I wish I was able to come back to North Carolina. Yeah, yeah. I really love this field work. I wish I was able to come back to North Carolina and just like keep working on the coastal plain because it seems like a really, a really interesting, um, really yeah. rich area. Thank you very much. We have one last question. Okay, actually, I, I have one question. Um, and this kind of goes back to the discussion we were having about the soil types and how that may influence the crop selection. Um, but what I very naively know about um, tobacco farming is that it's very labor intensive. 
And when the, um, you know, the quotas ended and there was less incentive to plant that labor-intensive crop, but they're used to providing labor for difficult crops. Did that play into crop selection? Did that allow the farmers to choose, you know, something a little bit harder to farm than, uh, you know, a, row, a regular row crop? Yeah, that's a great, that is an excellent question. I have one um, good story that I didn't fit onto the slide, but that really surprised me. I talked to one um, to one extension agent who knew a farmer who had decided to get out of tobacco. And tobacco, like you said, tobacco is super labor intensive. So they had been one of the only um, farms that she knew who had been using H2A labor, but they were like, okay, tobacco is not going to work for us anymore. We're not going to do tobacco anymore. We're going to stop hiring H2A labor. And what they hadn't, but they wanted to keep their other, um, it was a specialty crop. They wanted to keep their other um, crop, like extended rotation for the soil benefits and, you know, because they liked it. But what they hadn't fully understand, as she explained it to me, was that their H2A labor, while hired primarily for tobacco, was always available to kind of help pinch hit in the other fields if there was a if there was a rush of work. And then when they didn't have that labor crew on site, it was just, you know, the father um, and his son. And they they realized that they didn't they they couldn't keep doing this um, extended rotation that they had every economic, personal, um, environmental reason to do so. So once they had gotten out of tobacco, gotten out of H2A labor, that like created this domino effect where they were getting out of other um, other crops as well, which was an interesting wrinkle. But yeah, you're absolutely right. The way that you, the, yeah, the labor issue especially is, uh, is, is messy. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. Thank you. Well, I... I think we're out of time. So if everyone can help me thank Andrea for a really interesting um, discussion today. Um, thank you all so much. Thanks for having me. I have some fans in the room here. <laughs> um, okay, great. And then uh, I just want to remind everyone that next week, um, we really encourage you to come in person to Poe 202 if you're able. Um, we're going to have a more interactive um, discussion about um, some of the new policy type stuff coming out. So um, with that, thank everyone for coming and we'll see you next week. Bye.